I direct your attention this morning to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. We've just completed the account of the visit of the Magi from the east and their return, so the they in verse 13 is a reference to uh, the Magi whose account, whose story had been told in the previous paragraph. So we begin to read Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. God preserved the life of his son in Egypt as long before he had preserved the life of Israel there. Here we're introduced to a theme that is going to run through these verses, namely that Jesus is a second Moses. Moses also fled for his life from a king who was trying to kill him. Those who save, or the one who saved his people from their sins is a counterpart to the one who saved Israel from bondage in Egypt, the great redemptive event of the ancient scriptures. It was natural for the Holy Family to go to Egypt, not only because of its proximity, but because it already had a substantial Jewish population. Indeed, in Alexandria alone, there were at this time some 200,000 Jews, the largest concentration of Jews in the Roman Empire. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. But during the night or by night, indicates how promptly Joseph obeyed and how grave he understood the danger to be, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now the citation from Hosea 11.1 is not itself a prophecy, but Matthew is noting the correspondence between the history of Israel and the history of her king and savior. Both came up from Egypt to the promised land. Redemptive history is full of these patterns or this typology by which the Son of God is seen to be the fulfillment of what went before. Jesus is the goal of all of that history, and so he gathers up all of its threads. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had been, that he had ascertained from the wise men. The ruthlessness of Herod's later years was by this time a proverb. The victims of his paranoia included three of his own sons, as well as several large groups of suspected conspirators in one case, together with their families. This makes it entirely probable that Herod would kill a few babies, remember Bethlehem was a small village, it wasn't a city, in order to eliminate a potential rival. Such would have been a minor incident in a period of history full of atrocities. To give you a window on the mind of Herod, consider this. When he himself was near death, he left orders that one member of every family in his kingdom should be executed so that the entire nation would really be in mourning upon his death. Here is another parallel with Israel's early history. 
Pharaoh tried to kill the Hebrew infants, and Moses was spared. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Once again, Matthew draws our attention to a biblical pattern. As Rachel in her tomb was said in Jeremiah in a beautiful figure to weep for the exiles who were being carried off into captivity in Babylon, so here she weeps for the dead and mourning mothers of Bethlehem. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now to a Hebrew uh, hearer of this text, uh, Matthew was originally written for a Jewish audience, knowing the Bible as well as they did, they would immediately again notice the biblical pattern. The language of verse 20 is taken from Exodus chapter 4 verse 19 where the Lord commands Moses after his sojourn in Midian to return to Egypt because those who are trying to kill him were dead. The correspondence is so exact that the plural in Exodus 4.19 is retained. Those who are trying to take the child's life even though we would expect the singular as Herod was the only one attempting to take Jesus' life. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Archelaus was no better than his father. He was noted for his cruelty in an age of cruel men. But he succeeded only to the southern half of his father's kingdom. Galilee was ruled by Archelaus's half-brother Herod Antipas, who was a more tolerant man and ruler, and Galilee, therefore, was a safer place. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Our Father in heaven, we have to ask, why this particular material? What are we meant to learn from it? And so, O God, we ask you to illumine our minds by your holy word and then with the light warm our hearts to respond in faith and hope and love. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. The narratives of the Lord's birth in both Matthew and Luke primarily are accounts of events that occurred before and after the birth itself. In Luke, we have the announcement Gabriel made to Zechariah concerning the son who was to be given to him and to his wife in their old age. We have the Annunciation to Mary. We have the uh, Magnificat and the Benedictus. And then thereafter, we have the angelic visitation to the shepherds, their visit of the Holy Family in Bethlehem, followed by the presentation of Jesus in the temple. The birth itself is understated, reported in a very few words. She gave birth to her firstborn son. The narrative concentrates, spends almost all of its space on what happened before and after the birth. 
And it's the same in Matthew. There we read of the angel's appearance to Joseph, the visit of the Magi, and the paragraph we just read. The birth itself is recorded in a subordinate clause. Joseph did not know her until she had given birth to a son. The significance of the birth, the most important birth in the history of mankind, is communicated not by any elaborate account of the birth itself, but by the announcement of it beforehand made by heavenly messengers and by the extraordinary circumstances that attended and followed the birth of this particular baby boy. That makes the paragraph we just read, the finale of the birth narrative, all the more important. This is part of what we absolutely need to know and understand about the birth of Jesus Christ. So much is left out, as we noted last Lord's Day, but not this. As I pointed out to you on a number of occasions, over the past 30 years or so, a dramatic revolution has occurred in the study of the text of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but now also uh, the text of the Gospels. Informed by a deepening understanding of ancient Near Eastern literature, biblical interpreters have discovered to, agree, to a degree never uh, actually appreciated before how skillfully the Bible was written, and in particular, with what literary artistry the biblical narrative was written, that is, the historical parts of the Bible. We now realize that the authors of the Bible's historical narrative were theologians who used very sophisticated techniques by which they not only told the story of what had happened, not only made that story highly interesting to us, but wove in, under, around, and through their narrative, their theology, and their ethics. They wrote history in a way designed to teach God's people what they ought to believe and how they ought to live. Someone has described the biblical narrative as preached history. In this way, it becomes theology in flesh and blood, the truth of God and man revealed in an account of the past. The biblical authors accomplished that feat in ways appropriate for an oral culture. That is, to a time when the word of God was heard by many more people than ever read it. They sent signals to their hearers. Signals that ancient Near Eastern hearers were attuned to and would appreciate and understand and pick up. They did this with a set of literary or compositional techniques. They were craftsmen of, po of prose. Like painters on canvas, they produced a text that communicated not only accurate information, but perspective, interpretation, atmosphere, tone, and color all at once. One of the arts or techniques they employed was foreshadowing. One scholar defines foreshadowing as the inclusion of material in one part of the narrative that serves primarily to prepare the reader for what is still to come. Sometimes such foreshadowing can be a simple sentence, a single piece of information dropped into the narrative as it were unannounced and unexplained. An example would be the introduction of Sarah, Abraham's wife in Genesis 11. There we find an additional comment, the only descriptive comment 
about any of the women mentioned there that Sarah was barren. She had no children. Why was that fact mentioned? Why did we need to know that? Because the fact that Abraham and Sarah were childless would prove to be the presupposition of so much that was to come. God's promise to make of Abraham a great nation, the long wait for a child to be born, the misstep with Hagar and Sarah and all the rest. Sarah was barren. She had no children. This is the first thing we learn about the matriarch because that fact foreshadows what is to come. In the Christmas narrative, such a simple foreshadowing is furnished by Simeon's remark in Luke 2, 24, or 34 and 35, that the baby he was holding in his arms would be a sign that is opposed and a sword that would pierce Mary's heart. The Lord would prove a figure of controversy and a cause of great sadness. Nothing more is said. No explanation is offered. Only as events unfold later will we understand what Simeon meant. This is the literary technique of foreshadowing. A more complex example of foreshadowing is found later in Genesis, after Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. But before we read anything about what happened to him there, we have a long digression in Genesis 38, describing Judah's wickedness, his marriage outside the faith, his utter failure as a father and a father-in-law, his sexual sin, his stupidity, It is one of the most sordid chapters in the Bible. And it's all about Judah, who up to that point was a figure of no particular significance in the narrative. And then at the end of the chapter, a single remark of Judah's, nothing more, that hints, only hints, that he may have come to recognize what a fool and what a sinner he had become. And then Judah disappears from the narrative And the story moves on to tell of Joseph's life in Egypt and his meteoric rise to the position of the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth. But so we think all of that history could have been told without the depressing account of Judah's sinful life back in Canaan. Why is that dismal story told and why was it put there? The narrator doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us for some chapters to come. But he does eventually show us, as the history of the brothers coming to Egypt for food unfolds, suddenly we find that Judah, Jacob's fourth son, had assumed the spiritual leadership of the family. It was Judah who represented represented the others in repenting of the sins they had committed against Joseph 20 years before. And at the climax of the history, it was Judah of all people who offered his own life for Benjamin's, another favorite of his father Jacob, a favoritism that had infuriated the brothers years before. No wonder that Judah's offered to sacrifice his life for the life of his favored brother proved to be the spiritual rebirth of Jacob's spiritually sick and utterly dysfunctional covenant family. We only know how marvelous this is because we were first told what a wicked man Judah was. Later, Jacob prophesied that Judah, not Joseph, whom we've always taken to be the hero of the story, Judah, not Joseph, would be the progenitor of the king of kings. Why? Because he offered his life for the life of his family. Judah, of all people, became the Christ figure and the hero 
of this history, even more than Joseph. It was because of the foreshadowing of Genesis 38 that we can appreciate the meaning of this history. Only because we were given a brutally honest account of Judah's earlier life do we learn the power of God's grace to transform a sinful man into a righteous and loving man. We needed to know what a wicked man Judah had been to appreciate his later spiritual heroism. Genesis 38 is a particularly impressive example of a more complex literary foreshadowing. Well, a similar question presses upon us here. Why this material at the end of Matthew 2? Why this information and not something else? Matthew and the Holy Spirit behind him thought we needed to know about the flight to Egypt and the return to Galilee. Nothing much happened in those months. Why not tell us something instead about the Holy Family resettling in Nazareth or something about Jesus' early years as a baby and little boy living in Galilee? When confronted with an account like this, we should be asking such questions. What is the importance of this material? What purpose does it serve? Well, we have here a more complex example of foreshadowing. We have here material included in the narrative, the purpose of which is solely to prepare us for what is yet to come. And like other instances of foreshadowing in biblical narrative, particularly before we began to appreciate that it was foreshadowing, this is material that we are very likely to read without thought and quickly pass over to get to what comes next. You'll admit, won't you, that this tail end of the Christmas narrative is the part of the story of Jesus' birth that, which, that as a rule, we give least attention to. We don't sing this part of the story in our Christmas hymns and carols. It isn't usually even read during the Advent season. Why is that? Well, it isn't as charming a narrative, obviously. There's less here to celebrate, to love to hear. The history is somewhat dark and bleak. It's quite Spartan, few details given us. The journey from Bethlehem to Egypt, from Egypt to Galilee is sketched in a few short sentences. And it seems to be so anticlimactic. A few verses to explain how the Holy Family ended up back in Nazareth. Otherwise, we struggle to understand what this information adds to the story of Christ's birth. Well, we have here foreshadowing. Here, dark shades are drawn around the beautiful shimmering scene of the advent of the Son of God. In several ways, the text foreshadows the humiliation and suffering of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the birth narrative in Matthew concludes with a look forward to the life of the man of sorrows. Take note, for example, of the way this history underscores the Lord's identification with his people, by his taking their lot upon himself his becoming, as it were, Israel in himself. We've heard already in chapter 1 that Jesus was coming to save his people from their sins. That's what the angel told Joseph. But here we learn how he would do this. He would take their place. He would suffer their punishment 
in their place. This is the significance of the otherwise puzzling quotation of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, in verse 15. In Hosea, the prophet was speaking of God's love for Israel and his redeeming Israel from bondage. The whole verse reads, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now when Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 and applies it to the Christ child being in Egypt and returning from there to the Holy Land, it is evident that he is drawing attention to the fact that both Israel and Jesus himself are sons of God. Israel by electing love and adoption, Jesus by nature and in the deepest Trinitarian sense of the term son of God. This shared sonship is the foundation of the typology encountered often in the Bible that sees Israel's life as an enacted prophecy of Christ's own. Just as Pharaoh, a cruel king, had tried to destroy Israel, so Herod, another cruel king, was seeking to destroy Jesus. But as God protected his beloved people, his son in the first case, so he protected his son in the second. The Messiah is recapitulating the history of God's people. But this historical pattern, this duplication in history, is more than simply prophetic or typological, as if all it was was a way of demonstrating that the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is here being identified with Israel. His history is the history of God's people. We are in him, in his life. He's going the way they went, the way we went, accepting their lot, even their exile to Egypt. This would be, especially for Matthew's original Jewish readership, a profound way to explain what the Lord came to do. He was going to take upon himself the suffering, the pain, the hardship, the trial of his people. As Israel suffered in Egypt under a cruel king, so Jesus would suffer the threat of death from another cruel king, suffer exile, and then so much more. He was not only going to identify himself with his people, suffer as they had suffered in this world, and in that way become a faithful high priest, perfectly able to sympathize with them in their sorrows and grief. Even more than that, he's going to suffer their fate as sinners in their place. Take upon himself the judgment of God, which they deserved because of their sin. The Lamb of God, who would be slain to get them out of their Egypt, their bondage. All of this is foreshadowed in Jesus, if still in his mother's arms, running for his life as soon as he was born. Israel, the church of God, is God's son. But Jesus is God's son in a still more profound way. And the life of the one son will be the true fulfillment and so the salvation of the life of the other. All of this is then confirmed and heightened in Jesus' identification as a Nazarene in the final verse of the chapter. The term Nazarene means simply somebody who hails from Nazareth. Matthew doesn't bother to tell us that Nazareth was Joseph and Mary's hometown. He assumed his readers would know that fact. He is more interested in the significance of Jesus hailing from Nazareth. The quotation, he shall be called a Nazarene, is in fact nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. 
However, Matthew's formula for introducing the citation is strikingly different. Here it is prophets, not a particular prophet. The ESV puts the last sentence of Matthew 2 in quotation marks because it's what the prophet said. But no particular prophet put it precisely in these words. Matthew doesn't say that in this way was fulfilled what a particular prophet said, which is how he puts it in chapter 2, verse 5. In that case, the prophet Micah. Nor does he say, as he said in verse 17, that in this way was fulfilled what the prophet Jeremiah said. No, he says that in this way was fulfilled what the prophets had said about the coming Messiah. The implication seems to be that he shall be called a Nazarene is a kind of summary of what the prophets had predicted beforehand about the life and ministry of the Messiah. That is, it conveys the gist of their expectation. The obscurity of Nazareth, the unpromising nature of the place. As we said last time, Nazareth was so inconsequential a village that it is mentioned in no writing prior to the New Testament and no other first century writing after Matthew and Luke. The obscurity of Nazareth recalls the prophetic expectation that the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men and that he would fail to meet the exalted expectations the people would have for their coming king. In John chapter 1, we learn that Nazareth was not thought to be a worthy place of origin for the Messiah. Jesus of Bethlehem would have cachet, for Bethlehem was associated with the royal house of David. Jesus of Jerusalem would make sense because Jerusalem was the capital. But Jesus of Nazareth in those days to those ears would sound like Jesus of Puyallup or Jesus of Enumclaw. In other words, the Lord would live his life in obscurity, incognito. No one would recognize him for who he was or for what office he held or for what he came to do. In Nazareth, Hardly anybody would ever even meet the young fellow. He would not be honored or worshipped as the king he was. More than that, he would suffer humiliation for being taken for the furthest thing from the king he was. He would remain utterly unrecognized. Few would think of him as the Messiah even at the end of his life, much less as the savior of the world. And speaking of the prophet's prediction that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, Matthew was thinking of such prophecies as this in Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Jesus didn't return to Bethlehem or to Jerusalem, as might be expected of the king who would sit forever on David's throne as the angel told Mary he would. He went instead to Nazareth. Apart from the gospel history, we know nothing about Nazareth. Its chief characteristic was its irrelevance, its insignificance. The Jews in Judea thought of Galilee as Hicksville. Years later, when Philip ran to Nathanael and excitedly told him that he had found out that found the, the very one that Moses had written about, that he was Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel was only speaking for all of his fellows the Jew, among the Jewish people of that time. When he said Nazareth, 
Can anything good come from there? No great king, no savior of the world would come from a jerkwater town like Nazareth. And of course, what was true of his hometown was to be true of his entire life as our mediator, as the one who was identifying himself with us, living our life and dying our death. Though he was in truth God the Son, and though he was the long-awaited Messiah, and though he was the King of Kings, he would all his life be either ignored or positively hated, vilified, and rejected by his own people. They would accuse him of being a drunk and a glutton, a servant of the devil. They would accuse him of consorting with sinners and of being a great sinner himself. They would mock him as an amateur wannabe, a man out of his depth, a poseur. Far from recognizing him as the Son of God, many people, and the most important among them, did not even regard him as a good man. What is more, from early on in his ministry, there would be plots hatched to kill him. Herod's was only the first. He came from his high throne to this. Why? Because this humiliation, this rejection, leading ultimately to his crucifixion, was the price fixed by the justice of God to atone for the sins of those for whose salvation he had come into the world. The price of your redemption and mine was paid in full on the cross, but it was not paid on the cross alone. That price began to be paid as soon as Jesus came into the world. God, the mighty maker, conceived in a Jewish maiden's womb, born in a cow shed because there was no better accommodation to be found, fleeing to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod, returning to live and grow up in the most inconsequential village in Galilee, utterly unrecognized for who and what he was. This ignominy, this plunge of the Son of God to the very bottom of human life was the price of our eventual rise to the heights of heaven. Surely then it's not insignificant that the very last words of the Christmas history recorded for us in Luke and Matthew are these. He will be called a Nazarene. The Lord Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, God himself, was to make himself nothing for us. That's the great theme of this finale of the Christmas history. It's so charming and so happy a story for us to tell at this time of year only because we know how it ends. We know what it means. But the history itself was ignominy and humiliation and even terror. All of this is emphasized in this last paragraph and summarized in his last sentence. I want us to think about this and take this to heart this Christmas Sunday morning. Nobody wants to be thought nothing. It is our greatest passion in life to have a place in this world, to be somebody. It's why we are so defensive when we are criticized why we erect so many barriers to protect ourselves from any thought that we don't count, that we amount to nothing. We can't bear to be thought nothing. But that's what Jesus Christ willingly became for us. Nothing. The Son of God would become a mere human being among the faceless multitudes 
of his creatures. Later on, when the Lord's followers were called, as he had been called, Nazarenes, the people who used the term intended it as a slur, an insult. They meant to describe the Christians as nothings. If they hated the master, they would despise his servants as well. And that's what is indicated here in the final sentence of this Christmas history in the Gospel of Matthew. Nazarene foreshadowed what his life would be and would become. The high God stooped not only to become a man, but the lowest sort of man, a nothing man. And he did so because nothing else than his become becoming nothing would suffice to make something of you and me. Amen.